Um, okay, well, um, welcome everybody, and thanks ever so much for um, coming along to our adjudication updates uh, today. Uh, Mark has mentioned that we have a new name and some new branding this week, and you're all privileged to be the first to be hearing a Gatehouse Chambers talk under our new banner. So the purpose of today really is just to give a uh, brief uh, update on some sort of recent case law developments that there have been going on in the past 12 months on issues that are relevant to adjudication that it's certainly worth uh, being aware of. Now, of course, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, has had a significant impact on adjudication as it has on uh, all other things, but we didn't want to focus exclusively on that today, really for a couple of reasons. First, I'm sure that you all, as I have, have heard quite a lot about COVID over the past year, and it might be nice to talk about something different, at least for some of our time together. And also, the message from the courts in broad terms has been that it's business as usual as far as adjudication is concerned. Parties are expected basically to get on with it. And of course, the great advantage of a paper process is that it can take place remotely relatively easily, even if everybody else is uh, locked down at home. So there certainly have been a number of interesting developments. We're going to touch on those uh, a bit later. But COVID hasn't really caused the kind of seismic issues that we've seen perhaps in other areas of the law. Certainly criminal trials, jury trials spring to mind as the, as the biggest example of that. So we're going to divide this talk into two halves. I'm going to speak about uh, a couple of recent cases and updates that really have uh, nothing to do with COVID uh, at all. And then I'm going to hand over to George, who's going to talk through some specific challenges and arguments that the pandemic has raised and how the courts have kind of dealt with uh, those. Um, so the first issue I want to talk about, diving right in at the deep end, is uh, hybrid contracts. So as we all know, the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act 1996 contains a number of provisions that apply to a construction contract. Right? A construction contract is perhaps not very helpfully defined by Section 104 as a contract for construction operations. But that raises the question, what happens if you have a contract that contains both construction and non-construction operations? Well, the Act allows for this possibility in section 104, subsection 5, which I put up on the slide there. It says, where an agreement relates to construction operations and other matters, this part applies to it only so far as it relates to construction operations. Okay, fine. So how does that work? Uh, in practice. And there were a couple of different issues that arose in two cases that came out of the same broader dispute between the same two parties, and that's C. Spencer and MW Hitech projects. Now, the background to the sort of broader dispute was that C. Spencer was appointed by MW to carry out the civil engineering and architectural work for the construction of a waste to energy plant in Hull. Part of the works were construction operations, and part of them were not. In fact, they fell within the list of specifically excluded operations in uh, section 105. So this was a hybrid contract. Now, the first case uh, up on the slide there, which uh, came before the Court of Appeal last year, concerned a dispute regarding payment notices. C. Spencer made an application for payment. MW issued a payment notice in response. But MW's payment notice did not identify separately 
the construction and non-construction elements of the works. And C. Spencer says, well, that's not a valid payment notice because it doesn't comply with the Act. The Act says its provisions apply only insofar as the contract relates to construction operations. And essentially, in order to work out whether or not a notice complies, you have to identify the construction and non-construction elements separately. And the Court of Appeal rejected that argument, saying essentially it started from the wrong premise. One doesn't look at the terms of the Act. That's not the, the starting point. The starting point is the terms of the contract. And as long as the terms of the contract comply with the minimum requirements of the Act lays down, the Act falls away. Now, looking at this contract, it contains a perfectly valid set of payment provisions that comply with the Act. And those provisions cover both construction and non-construction operations. And that's fine. There is nothing that prevents the parties from contracting into the Act, if you like, um, by setting out a payment notice regime that applies to both construction and non-construction works. All the Act does is prevent you contracting out of its requirements uh, in relation to construction operations specifically. So a payment notice that deals with both together is perfectly compliant with the Act. And so long as it complies with the terms of the contract, it is valid and effective. Now, the court did note that on the particular facts in the terms of this particular contract, the position was different as regards the adjudication provisions. And there, the terms of the contract expressly limited the rights of the parties to refer to adjudication only a dispute that related to construction operations. Well, guess what? That was precisely the issue that arose in the second case on the side, which came before Mr Justice Waxman in the TCC in March of this year. Now, there have been a number of adjudications between the parties, but those that were relevant to the issue here were adjudications three and four. So, in adjudication three, uh, C. Spencer had succeeded in establishing that it, it had completed works under the contract with a value of around £3.2 million. Pounds. So C. Spencer therefore duly commenced adjudication number four, seeking payment of the said sum. Now MW in response adopted a rather unattractive position. It raised a number of counterclaims, which it said related to non-construction works. And it said that because they were non-construction related and the adjudicator's jurisdiction was expressly limited to construction disputes, the adjudicator, MW argued, had no jurisdiction to value or assess its counterclaims. Simply couldn't do it, couldn't take any value other than simply the face value of those claims. But nonetheless, MW said, the adjudicator did have to give credit for them by deducting them at face value from C. Spencer's claim. And what do you know it, deducting them left a large balance due to MW. And so MW's argument, this was effectively the only course open to the adjudicator, deducting the claims in full without reaching any conclusion as to their value. Now it may not surprise you to hear that that approach did not find favor with the adjudicator, who simply excluded the counterclaims from consideration altogether and awarded C. Spencer the full sum that had been claimed. The court agreed with that approach. It described NW's stance as very odd and characterized its argument as a sort of look but don't touch. 
And in particular, the point that the court really struggled with was it couldn't understand on what basis it was said that credit should be given for these counterclaims, not least because MW had specifically disavowed any suggestion that it was running an argument of set-off in relation to these claims. And presumably it did that because it knew that it had admitted that it was trying to set them off, that would make it a defence to the construction claims and would bring it within the adjudicator's uh, jurisdiction. Um, so I think the lesson here is that in a hybrid contract, obviously there certainly can be difficult issues about whether the adjudicator has the jurisdiction to consider certain points. Contractual definition of the adjudicator's jurisdiction is going to be key, but it's going to be very difficult for the, for the parties to try and run the kind of halfway house that MW tried to set up where it wanted the best of both worlds, excluding detailed consideration of its counterclaims from the adjudicator's jurisdiction, but trying to claim the benefit of those claims at the same time. Obviously, that's not an approach that's going to find any degree of favour, either with an adjudicator or the court. So that deals with um, hybrid contracts, C. Spencer and uh, MW. So looking now at um, adjudication costs. And as we all know, normal rule is that in adjudication, uh, adjudications are no cost jurisdiction and parties cannot recover their legal costs unless they have agreed to confer such a jurisdiction upon the adjudicator in writing after the adjudication has commenced. And that's all contained in section 108A of the 1996 Act. Now, of course, we practitioners have tried one way or another to get around this restriction, and yeah, there are various arguments that have been attempted uh, over the years. Now, one argument that enjoyed at least uh, some measure of success for a while was based on the Late Payment Commercial Debt Interest Act 1998. Because the 1998 Act implies into any contract concerning a qualifying debt an entitlement to the receiving party's reasonable costs of recovery. And so the argument ran a referring party was entitled to claim their adjudication costs pursuant to that uh, implied term. Now, as you may well be aware, this line of argument was rejected by Mrs. Justice O'Farrell in the Enviroflare case. And her reasoning in a nutshell was, yes, the 1998 Act does imply a term allowing the reasonable costs of recovery. However, insofar as that captures adjudication costs, it doesn't meet the requirements of section 108 a It's not in writing, it's not entered into after the adjudication has commenced. And therefore, the 1998 Act implied term is in the words of 108A, ineffective. So it simply can't form the basis of an adjudicator's jurisdiction over costs. Well, all right, so far so good. Um, but what happens if a referring party has claimed costs on the basis of the 1998 Act, and the responding party hasn't objected, and simply dealt with the substance of the argument on costs in the adjudication. Well, one might think in those circumstances that the enviroflow point has been waived, and the adjudicator has an ad hoc jurisdiction to deal with the point. But that was not the result that was reached in the Aqua Leisure case. Um, this was an enforcement application of an adjudicator's decision that had been taken some time ago, actually in July uh, of 2017. And importantly, the decision predated the judgment uh, in, in Bioflow. 
So the referring party claimed costs in accordance with the 1998 Act, and the responding party did not challenge the adjudicator's jurisdiction on that basis. Now, because common practice and understanding at the time was that the argument based on the 1998 Act was good, it simply seems not to have occurred to the referring party, or the responding party rather, uh, that the argument in Enviroflow might be uh, available. Obviously, once the matter reached uh, enforcement stage, several years later, after there have been various discussions between the party, um, judgment in Enviroflow had been handed down and was raised by the responding party, who argued that the adjudicator had no jurisdiction as to the issue of costs. And the court agreed and accepted that argument on behalf of the responding party and did not enforce the decision that had been made in respect of costs. Um, the argument, the inevitable argument that the responding party had waived the jurisdictional point was rejected. And His Honour Judge Bird said, you know, while it was right that Enviroflow hadn't changed the law as such, it just revealed the law as it always had been, it was impossible to ignore the fact that common practice and understanding at the time of the adjudication had been to assume that the 1998 argument was good. So in those circumstances, the responding party could not be taken to have waived a point of which it couldn't have been reasonably uh, aware. So that I think is a helpful and interesting point in itself, insofar as it deals with new decisions that might be handed down. It's unlikely that a responding party has not taken the relevant point would have waived it, at least insofar as they act in accordance with common practice at the time. Um, but the court then took a step further. And it said, in any event, the Enviroflow point is in fact not capable of being waived because it comes not from some procedural failure, but from a statutory prohibition contained in section 108A. And the parties can't override the terms of that statute by agreement, still less by their conduct. And we can see that that's a much more powerful argument because it doesn't rely upon any new decision or any change in the law. So if today a responding party failed to raise Enviroflow in response to a claim for costs under the 1998 Act, it would be open to it in the view of Zion Judge Bird to raise the issue at the enforcement stage, notwithstanding that it never reserved its position or, or made the point previously. Now, these were only obiter comments and the judge accepted that there had been no argument on this point. So it remains to be seen whether this case will survive as authority for the proposition that the environmental point is simply incapable of being waived. But it's nonetheless worth being aware of as a possible escape route for respondents or their representatives who missed the Enviroflow point at the first time around. Um, the last case that I want to talk about uh, is Triple Point. Now, you may be thinking, gosh, I didn't know that uh, Triple Point was an adjudication case, and you'd be absolutely right, it isn't, uh, nor is it actually even a construction case. Um, on the other hand, as you may well be aware, it's a seminal Supreme Court judgment that was handed down only on Friday. And it deals with the issue of liquidated damages, which of course frequently arises uh, in construction disputes, particularly uh, in adjudication. So if you weren't aware of it already, it's certainly worth um, just highlighting it now. 
Um, so the facts of this case were that Triple Point was appointed by PPT to develop some bespoke software. Triple Point was entitled under the contract to stage payments as and when certain set milestones of the works were completed. And the liquidated damages clause that operated in the event of delay. Uh, and the first two milestones were completed, but the project then fell into delay. Triple Point was demanding more money for subsequent milestones, even though it hadn't delivered the services yet, and then stopped work. And the contract was ultimately terminated by Group T with no further work being delivered. And the problem was that the liquidated damages clause was, as I think is fairly common, drafted so as to define the period for which damages would run as the date from when completion was required until the date when the work was actually completed. But the question of course arose, how does that operate when the contract was terminated and the remaining works never delivered? So at first instance, Mrs. Justice Jefford applied what had previously been treated as the orthodox analysis, liquidated damages ran up to the date of the contract, uh, ran up to the date when the contract was terminated, and thereafter general damages applied. Uh, it was really in the Court of Appeal where things started to go off the rails. Uh, and Lord Justice Jackson was persuaded based on an old House of Lords decision called Glanstock, that if the contract was terminated pre-completion, the parties were into an entirely separate scenario not governed by the liquidated damages provision. And therefore damages were simply at large uh, and were awarded in that case on common law principles. Um, he then further muddied the waters by saying, essentially, this all just depends on the particular clause in question, identifying three alternative scenarios. It could be that liquidated damages don't apply at all. It could be that they apply up to the date of termination, or it could be that they apply until some later date when the works are completed by an alternative contractor. And sort of paraphrasing his judgment, on the facts he held that triple point was a case of the first category, Clause simply didn't apply and so common law damages were awarded, but other conclusions might be appropriate in other cases. Although he did doubt that the third category was correct, but he didn't think it was necessary to review the authorities and determine whether or not they were correctly decided. Now it's fair to say that there's been some degree of confusion as to what the position actually is um, since uh, Lord Justice Jackson handed down this um, rather unique judgment. Uh, and the Supreme Court, uh, as of Friday, has reverted back to the position at first instance and held that liquidated damages apply up to the date of termination with common law damages thereafter. Now, of course, express terms may override that position in a, a particular case, but the Supreme Court gave quite a clear indication that that will be the orthodox analysis. Indeed, Lord Leggett went so far as to say that absent express terms to the contrary, that would be the position. And the reasoning really was that that analysis accords with sort of the commercial purpose of the liquidated damages clause, which is to you know, prevent the parties having to engage in costly and difficult uh, negotiations or having to prove what the common law damages would actually have been by simply setting a figure. And commercial common sense dictates that they would want that to apply for the whole period while their contract was in operation. Um, it also protects the accrued right of the innocent party to liquidated damages, which on Lord Justice Jackson analysis somehow simply fell away on termination. Um, Lady Arden, in what I read as quite a scathing critique of Jackson's analysis, 
said that the Court of Appeal was effectively led astray by the Glanstock case, which was a decision as to the interpretation of a particular contract and really laid down no broad principle. So the Supreme Court hopefully has resolved what's been quite a difficult area and one that's given rise to significant confusion. Um, that concludes the points that I was going to cover. So I will hand over to George, who is going to deal with some uh, COVID-related matters specifically. Thank you, Simon. Um, and thank you, everybody, for coming to this talk today. It's nice to see some familiar names uh, on the list. Um, right. I'm going to be speaking, uh, like Simon did, about three recent cases. Um, but I'm going to be focusing specifically on the effect of COVID on adjudications and adjudication enforcement. Um, I want to stress at the outset that a number of other interesting issues in these cases, and they're worth reading, but I'm going to focus purely on the COVID points. Um, so I hope you enjoyed your holiday from COVID with Simon's half of the talk, but I'm afraid we're, we're back into it now. Okay, so the first two cases um, involve applications for stays of enforcement. Um, rather than uh, substantive resistance of enforcement itself. And I want to start with the basics on stays of enforcement. And these are things that I'm sure all of you will already know. But quickly, the starting position. Well, we know that decisions, we're told all the time, decisions of adjudicators are intended to be enforced. That is your starting position. You're always going to be on the back foot facing an uphill struggle if you're trying to resist it. And the same goes for a stay. In fact, if uh, any of you have, have spent as much time as I have in um, Coulson's latest edition of uh, Coulson on adjudication, you will see that there are a few paragraphs of uh, very erudite grumbling about the tendency of parties now to see stay applications as the new way of resisting enforcement um, because they seem to have got the message that resisting enforcement substantively won't work, but now they see a stay as a way of sneaking that in. And the strong guidance from the courts is that that uh, is not going to work. So the probable inability to repay um, the sum at the end of a substantive trial may constitute special circumstances so that it's appropriate to grant a stay. That's the starting position. Um, you need to prove a probable inability to repay. Now, if the claimant seeking enforcement is in insolvent liquidation or there's no dispute that the claimant is insolv insolvent, then you might well get a stay. But, and this is the, the important thing, um, even if the claimant could probably not repay the sum when it would fall due, you need to look at Coulson's final two principles from Wimbledon and Vago, and these are the things that very often trip people up. You will not get your stay, usually, if the claimant is in the same financial position um, or a better financial position um, as it was when you contracted with it, and you will not get your stay if it doesn't have any money because you haven't paid it the money it's owed under the adjudication award. Now, that seems to um, make sense, um, but it is something to remember because quite often you find these cases where somebody looks at this construction company and they say, well, it's, its financial situation is completely dire. It hasn't got any money at all. And they forget that when they contracted with it five years ago, its financial situation was completely dire and it didn't have any money at all. Um, and that will be the end of it um, on a stay application, in my experience. So moving on, and I'm going to do a Chris Whitty here. Um, next slide, please, Simon. 
thank you very much. Um, uh, we've seen some development of these principles, or at least um, them being repeated in, in more recent judgments. We know from total M&E very clearly that the burden of proof is on the party seeking the stay. Now, that's straightforward enough, but as we will see, that can be very, very difficult um, in, in uh, light of the evidential problems that you might encounter. And we see that cropping up in the cases I'm going to talk about. From the Farrelly case, we're told that if you're trying to prove that the claimant doesn't have any money, that it's insolvent, the claimant is not under any obligation to disclose to you its confidential financial information to help you prove that. If you want to prove it, you've got to prove it yourself. Kersfield, we're told again, the court is going to lean in favour of enforcing decisions. AWG, we're told that when considering whether it is going to be just um, to award a stay, the diligence with which the party seeking the stay has pursued, as a matter of fact, its cross-claim is a relevant factor. And again, we will see that come up in the cases that I'm about to talk about. And the Govener case, finally, um, we will all know now the High Court, um, Mr Justice Fraser in the High Court, and then Lord Justice Coulson in the Court of Appeal, adding a new factor um, criterion to the Wimbledon and Vago principles. I would just mention that Lord Justice Coulson has himself said he didn't intend the Wimbledon and Vago principles to be a definitive list of the ways that you can get a stay. Um, but I think we all know in reality that they are, at the very least, the starting point and really do form the backbone for any stay application at the moment. And if you're going to try to get around them with something else, um, you are going to have your work cut out for you even more than you do already when you're trying to use those basics. So um, next slide, please. Brosley is the first case I want to talk about. It's a decision of Roger Tahar QC, um, a very experienced deputy judge. And S&T and Grove is on the slide there. There are some interesting issues in this case about the S&T, um, when you can commence a true value adjudication, um, when you haven't been, haven't made a payment of your interim award. I'm not gonna to touch those, I'm gonna stay on COVID. I'm sorry, it's COVID, COVID, COVID today, but um, we're just gonna to have to get through it. Um, it raises the thorny question of when your ability to repay must be judged, because we sit here and we say, well, probable inability to repay a, a judgment sum. Well, when? When is that judgment sum going to come about? What's going to happen in the meantime? And one of the problems with, uh, with these stay applications, and as we will see, is that the judge has to look into the future. Um, and that is difficult at the best of times. It has become increasingly difficult because of COVID. None of us know exactly what's going to be happening in a month, two months, six months, 18 months when you've concluded your proceedings. And that can raise real difficulties. It also gives, um, shed some light on just how much of a requirement this diligent pursuit of a cross-claim is going to be. So the next slide please, Simon. Brosley's case was that um, PAML was not going to be able to repay the sum under the adjudication at the conclusion of the substantive proceedings. That is a familiar tale, but how was it going to prove that? Well, the judge was given a list of Brosley's um, current projects and the projects which it had won. And 
its turnover on the evidence that was available to the judge suggested that in, in conjunction with that list of its current and future work, it probably would be able to repay the judgment sum if it did all of that work. So is that the end of it? Well, maybe not, because the judge did accept that the COVID-19 emergency measures that had been brought in by the government might well have an impact on whether all of those projects would continue or whether they would commence, as the case may be. And the judge was prepared to accept that this made Rosalie's position more difficult. Remember those words. But the judge could not say whether because of COVID-19, Rosalie would in due course be unable to repay the judgment sum. And now we have to remember where the burden of proof lies. It lies with the party seeking its stay. And because of that heavy burden that lies upon that party, the application failed. The judge simply couldn't say um, that Rosalie was not going to be able to repay this sum on the evidence before him, notwithstanding the fact that unquestionably COVID-19 and the state of the construction industry meant that there was a risk that things were going to go downhill. I should say, as a final point on this, this case, it also would have failed the application for the stay, um, Roger Tahar tells us, on the basis, purely on the basis, um, that PAML had not diligently pursued its true value determination. That would have been enough on its own, even if, even if it could have made out its case on the financial aspect, that would have been enough on its own to um, mean that a stay was not going to be awarded. So we can see that this diligent pursuit of a cross-claim, this is, this is not something that um, deserves only lip service. This is a real, real requirement, um, and it can be fatal to your claim. Now, the judge in this case said that they had taken no steps whatsoever. Um, what, what steps you actually have to take is, is an open question to feel secure about this, um, but you can expect that this element um, of your claim, if you're seeking a stay, will be subject to to scrutiny, and you will have to explain what it is you've done to pursue this um, true determination if you if you want to stay, notwithstanding what else you might be able to come up with on the financial evidence. Okay, so this is echoed in WRW, which is the next slide. Um, I think we've gone a little bit. Oh no, we haven't gone too far. Um, can we go back a slide, please, Simon? Sorry. Um, WRW. So this decision, Roger Tahar-Kisi's decision in um, Rosalie, is echoed in WRW. And this, again, deals with the stay point. And the court, again, refers to the well-known principles from Wimbledon and Vago and to Roger Tahar's decision in Rosalie. And it repeats again that the burden is, and I'm going to quote, firmly on the defendant. Well, we know that it's on the defendant, but it's firmly on the defendant to make out this case for a stay. Um, now, in the WRW case, the, the defendants made what was called in the judgment a sustained attack on the lack of management accounts um, that had not been provided by the claimant, despite the defendant's requests. Um, but Deputy Judge Andrew Singer QC said, and I'm going to quote it to you, I do not regard the lack of management accounts from the claimant as attracting any sort of criticism 
or meaning that the court should infer that the claimant's finances are in any way less strong than their own evidence and accounts show. A good deal of relevant financial information has been provided by the claimant, and the lack of more is not, in my judgment, a proper criticism of the claimant. So we learn again that even in COVID times, when we are um, looking around for whatever evidence we can find to make this um, prospective assessment of a company's financial position more valid, you're not going to get anywhere with this argument claiming to disclose their financial information to you. That is their information. It is your claim to prove, and they are not obliged to help you out with that. Now, um, Andrew Singer QC went on to say, I'm wholly unpersuaded by the anecdotal evidence obtained by the defendant's director, Mr. Davies. It demonstrates to me a determination to find reasons to delay payment to the claimant rather than real concerns with the claimant's financial standing. Now, that, um, that sentiment, if not those exact words, is something you find coming up in many, many adjudication enforcement cases, whether they're stay cases um, or substantive enforcement challenges. The court will not entertain. Um, parties simply trying to find a way to delay paying. Um, and you will know um, that there are many, many cases where the court makes indemnity costs orders for exactly that reason. If the court is not satisfied that there was any real substance to your um, resistance um, of enforcement, whether that's by way of a stay or a substantive challenge, you can um, expect, at the very least, that the um, claimant party will seek an indemnity cost order against you. Um, and there is a very good chance they will get it. Okay. And the final point from Andrew Singer's judgment, um, he makes the point that even if he had been wrong about their financial position, he would not have granted the stay because, and I'm gonna quote this to you, the defendant has not commenced any proceedings to reopen the valuation carried out by the adjudicator and although Mr. Hargreaves told me, and I accept, of course, that he was instructed that such proceedings were very much intended by the defendant, I see no good reason why such proceedings could and should not have commenced some time ago. The lack of such proceedings would, on its own, have been fatal to the application for a stay if other factors had been in the defendant's favour, contrary to my views above. And he dismisses the application. So there we see it again. This diligent pursuit of your cross-claim is something that is going to be scrutinised and it is something you really have to bear in mind because the judge here was prepared to say that it should have been done sometime before the application. And even if he was wrong, um, that the claimant's financial position was healthy and that there wasn't a probable inability to repay the judgment sum, that matter on its own would have been enough to dispose of the application. This is a really, really important matter. Um, so what do we take from, from these decisions? Well, seeking a stay um, has not become any easier. I think we can probably agree on that. Um, and I think we can see that actually in the way um, that Lord Justice Coulson um, has identified, uh, the narrative is very much towards things becoming harder. Um, the judges are all on the same side of this issue. The, the matter, um, of whether a adjudication award should be enforced, whether that is substantively or by way um, of a stay, is, is a question to which the answer is absolutely clear. Judges are not going to um, allow you to resist enforcement of adjudication decision unless you have a very, very good reason that you can prove. 
Now, COVID, well, COVID might make things more difficult, but it is definitely not going to be enough simply to say, well, COVID, and speculate that the claimant's financial position is going to deteriorate. You are going to need to um, show some real strong evidence that that is actually going to happen if you're going to get over this very high evidential hurdle um, in proving your stay application. And finally, I've mentioned it already, this requirement to pursue your cross-claim is not nominal. Both of these cases have made it absolutely clear um, that that failure would have been enough on its own to dispose of the application. So finally, um, now I'm ready for the next slide, please, thank you. Um, a different topic, injuncting adjudications. Well, question is, how do you stop an adjudication from taking place in the first place if you want to get in ahead of an enforcement challenge? Or how do you stop one from continuing if it has been commenced? Well, first of all, you can get an injunction in theory. TwinTech um, is the best case for this, and it tells us that it will be only granted in exceptional circumstances. And that's no surprise to anybody. Um, you can also ask the TCC for declaratory relief. For example, if the adjudication clearly has no jurisdiction, or if bringing the adjudication is unreasonable or oppressive behaviour. Now, in Bresco, the Supreme Court overturned a decision to grant an injunction on the basis that an adjudication would serve no useful purpose because the referring party was insolvent. And you'll find um, some useful guidance in that judgment on when adjudication um, injunctions might be appropriate. Um, and I don't think I'm going to be spoiling any um, surprises by saying that those circumstances are few and far between. So Mill, Chris and Waters, this is my final case um, on the next slide. Waters has commenced an adjudication and the adjudicator has timetabled the submission of evidence to be completed by the 3rd of April 2020 and a, a site visit for the 14th of April 2020. Appreciate those are a little while ago, but there's a reason um, why it's a particularly relevant example. And that is because you will remember, although you might not want to, that April um, last year was peak COVID in lots of ways. It was peak disruption. Um, the lockdown was very recently introduced. Nobody really knew what was going to happen. And everything seemed um, very, very uncertain and difficult. Now, um, Milchris um, wrote to the adjudicator and they said that the adjudication should be postponed until the end of lockdown. Um, because it was not possible to comply with the scheduled timetable due to the lockdown restrictions. Didn't get anywhere with that, and it applied for an interim injunction prohibiting the respondent from proceeding with the adjudication. And Milker sought its injunction on the basis that if the adjudication took place, it would be conducted in breach of the rules of natural justice because, it said, it did not have sufficient time to prepare for it properly. Um, as a result of COVID-19, its um, solicitor um, was self-isolating at home, and it said it made, that made it difficult to obtain evidence from those with knowledge of the dispute. And it also submitted that it would be unfair to proceed with a site visit when none of its representatives were able to attend, and there was insufficient time to appoint an independent surveyor to be present on their behalf. Now, um, any guesses which way this one went? Well, the court dismissed the application, um, and the court said it will only grant an injunction in respect of an ongoing adjudication in, quote, very, uh, very rarely and in very clear cases. Now, this was 
neither of those. Uh, and in any adjudication, the court said, issues had to be addressed within a short time scale, and adjudications are usually under time constraints. In this case, there would be no explanation as to why the relevant papers could not be digitally transported or scanned over to the solicitor, or why they couldn't simply instruct somebody else to deal with it. The court also said the parties to an adjudication had no right to be present at a site visit. The adjudicator could therefore conduct the site visit on his own. Why not? Um, and despite the property being owned by the respondent, he therefore had access. Arrangements could have been made for the visit to be recorded or for the applicant to list specific matters for the adjudication, adjudicator's attention beforehand. And the court found none of these things have been considered or done. Um, and finally, the court said the reason, not being, the reason for not being able to attend, uh, obtain evidence had little to do with COVID-19, actually, um, but rather with the fact that the applicant had been unable to contact its former managing director. Um, within the time that it had available, and therefore um, the injunction was not granted. Application was dismissed and the adjudication proceeded. However, the court did say, and I'm going to quote this, it may be possible to conceive of circumstances in which the court could reach the conclusion that the adjudication would inevitably be conducted in breach of natural justice. For example, if the adjudicator had made plain that he only intended to hear from one party. That is far from the present case. Now, what I'd like to say about that is that seems like a very extreme example to me. And if the court is, um, in light of the COVID lockdown that had recently been introduced, so strongly opposed to granting an injunction um, in those circumstances, I think we can all see that although it may be possible to conceive of circumstances where an injunction might be granted, there are not very many of those, um, and you are really going to have your work cut out um, trying to establish them in front of the court. Um, I would also say, final point, that if you are in a situation where the adjudicator had made plain that he only intended to hear from one party, well, I think we can all... Um, know that that would clearly be a, a breach of the rules of natural justice. You would still have to consider whether the best course of action was to go to the court and um, try to get an injunction at that stage, or whether the better position would be to make the appropriate reservations during the adjudication process, and then go in with a little bit more confidence to a substantive um, enforcement challenge later down the line. Now, those are commercial matters, they will be very fact sensitive in, in every case. But I think um, what we can see from all of the cases on injunctions, um, and particularly in, in light of the COVID related challenges, is that it is still going to be very, very hard to succeed. And you might find yourself throwing um, a lot of good money after bad in that respect and finding yourself back at square one facing this adjudication as you were before. So that is everything I wanted to say. Um, Thank you very much. I think Simon and I are both available to take some questions now if anybody has anything they want to ask us. Um, Simon, is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, no, absolutely. If, uh, if there are any questions, then we'll, we'll hang on for uh, a few minutes to, to deal with those. But um, if not, thank you everyone ever so much for your time coming on to attend today. And we hope it's been um, interesting and useful.
Gate House Chambers is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This recording is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or for any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Gatehouse Chambers or by Gatehouse Chambers as a whole.